0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
1: sorry
2: so to set the scene it's the second of july saturday the second of july 2016. what we're doing here in the kitchen this afternoon is we do a bake every week for the skull Country market.
3: We're in the kitchen of the Prairie Cottage with Ian and Jules while they're both baking.
2: I'll keep that up to full blast.
3: Ian and Jules run a stand at the Skull Market every Sunday from Easter to the end of September.
2: Jules bakes a range of breads and biscuits and crumbles and Danish pastries and I do some pizzas.
1: And there's crafts as well. And I, I take my paintings in, all the smaller stuff. And little prints
4: with his profile in the Irish media Ian makes for a curious site selling his baked goods that some fellow stallholders refer to as pizzas to die for and that
2: seals the dough
4: Ian says they get a range of customers and, um, including tourists who don't know anything about the case
2: well I mean it gives us an opportunity to just speak to to a whole lot of people I know as you can see here we you know we're quite isolated, and we do have occasional visitors so it, it, it's a nice humanizing interface.
3: But many locals who were around at the time of Sophie's murder and lived through the investigation draw an imaginary semicircle in front of the stall and don't step inside it.
2: I guess we're a sort of not novelty, exactly, but...
3: In 2014, a journalist wrote in the Irish Examiner that you'd be hard-pressed, I'd wager, to find anyone in West Cork, possibly in all of Ireland, who doesn't believe that Ian Bailey is guilty of the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. Ian's aware of the animosity. It happens every week. He wears wraparound Polaroid sunglasses at the market, whatever the weather. He told us it was so that other people couldn't see where he was looking, or if he was looking at them. He calls them his paranoids. One summer, there was an incident where a local came down to the market stall and started shouting, murderer, at Ian, and offering to fight him. Eventually, Ian called the guards. Ian says the past 20 years in West Cork have often felt like living in a nightmare. But still... He's never thought of leaving.
2: I mean, every time I drive down that road, that Dunmanus Road and see Dunmanus Bay, my, my spirits, my soul is just elevated. And even though we've been put through this unusual torture, I still wouldn't want to be anywhere else.
4: Tom Quinn, the house painter, says the fact that Ian loves West Cork is beside the point.
2: Yeah, but who loved him, like? Tell me about all the people who loved him. I don't know anybody who likes him at all. Don't you know the fucking trouble you've caused, like,
0: to this community,
2: like. People suspect you of murder. Why are you still here? Why didn't you just fucking leave if you like this community? Why didn't you just leave?
4: This is West Cork, an Audible Original series. I'm Jennifer Ford.
3: I'm Sam Bungie, and this is episode 9, The Moonshine Effect. In February 1997, just after Ian was arrested and released, the guards wrote to the prosecutor urging him to press charges. They laid out the threat Ian posed to West Cork in numbered format. 1. It is of the utmost importance that Bailey be charged immediately with this murder, as there's every possibility that he will kill again. 2. It is reasonable to suggest that witnesses living close to him are in imminent danger of attack. 3. The only way to prevent further attack or killing is to take Bailey into custody on a charge of murder, and this point cannot be overstressed.
4: Dozens of guards from all over the country had descended on West Cork, going house to house, interviewing more than a thousand people.
2: They were telling our neighbours and friends, have no doubt, and they sowed the seeds of terror, in effect fear, in the minds of ordinary people in West Cork. In fact, I don't know if your listeners could ever use the language that they used. They think they refer to me as that big fucking English bollocks. January
4: 1998. The guards arrested Ian for a second time. They questioned him at the station for 12 hours and again let him go. No charges followed. Once again, the Director of Public Prosecutions, the DPP, failed to see enough hard evidence in the case they'd been presented with and refused to authorise a murder charge against Ian. But the lack of action from the prosecutor, who was based in the capital city of Dublin, seemed to run contrary to feelings about the case on the ground
3: in West Cork.
0: The whole place was going berserk
3: with rumour. Claire Wilkinson was a friend of Ian's and remembers being singled out for it. I wasn't to go down to the village because of the company I kept. I had a phone call. It, it had all just gone mad. Claire remembers the guards coming around to talk to her about Ian.
0: It was They were like the Blues Brothers. That's exactly what they were like. And I remember one's face peering up over the windowsill, you know, to see if the, you were on your own in the room or if there were people there before they'd come in.
3: The guards took her through some of the things they'd been hearing about Ian to see if she'd experienced anything like this. Did I realise that um,
0: 200 women had given evidence of how frightened they were of Ian? Um, Did I know that he liked um, gang bangs and, um, you know, multi-sexual happenings? did I know he'd been seen jumping up and down the middle of the road on a stick or something, hurling at the moon? All oh, quite sort of crazy things. All things to make me be afraid. And they said, you should be afraid for your life
3: because um, of who he is. The press picked up on the mood. When Ian talked to journalists about being framed, it allowed them to refer to him as the suspect in an open case. This title, Self-Confessed Prime Suspect, has haunted Ian ever since. Ian spent several days with a journalist who travelled down from Dublin to do an article on him. The story was titled Investigating with the Prime Suspect. And at the end of the piece, she wrote, I spent four of the strangest days of my life with Bailey, and I still have nightmares about them. Ian's lawyer, Jim Duggan, remembers this particular article.
1: I read that. Before I met Ian Bailey... And I was convinced that that man did that. That's the end of of story. And anybody else who read that article, and that's why people were so
3: afraid of it. There were stories that at home Ian wore a skirt, that one of his hobbies was destroying religious artefacts, that he'd howl at the moon, that once he held a full moon ceremony on a nearby beach, sitting naked in a rocking chair and reading poetry while ten lesbians danced around him. These otherworldly rumours were some of the first things we heard about the case.
1: It's not natural for a woman to be murdered two days before Christmas, you know, her face and head and shoulders smashed in with with stones.
4: Lara Marlowe, the Paris correspondent for the Irish Times, told us she thought the crime called for an explanation that matched its strangeness.
1: So it's not surprising that you get these strange stories about men howling at the moon and uh, premonitions, and um, because it, it, it's an unnatural thing. It's something that, that, that that's dark and ugly and evil, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, we, we, we try to, to make sense of these things.
2: There was a story put around right at the beginning that I had a, a strange stick, like a wizard's stick. It was referred to as a moon stick, and this, I don't know who started this one, but it appeared in print and I sort of lived on in, in, into legend. I'm, I'm still interested to know what a moonstick is.
3: I don't know when we first saw the stick, but he always had it. That's Delia Jackson, Ian's neighbour. When we asked her about Ian's moonstick, she knew exactly what we meant. And he used to keep it propped up in the. There's
5: a little sort of glass porch bit. That was the, the place it was kept.
3: Delia says it was more like a staff than a stick. In fact, a lot of people we spoke to described a similar staff.
2: He arrived in town with it. This, you know, a walking stick is one thing, but this wasn't a walking stick. It was kind yeah, of it very, was more like a, staff, yeah. you know, druid's kind of like
0: mm.
2: pole rather than stick.
6: And this huge staff, like a, something you'd see out of the Bible, this great long stick and this huge book under his arm.
3: Bill Hogan says the book was by the occultist Alistair Crowley. It seems people in town thought of this outsized walking stick as a physical manifestation of all that was strange about Ian. It was just a weird thing to do, to walk everywhere with a great block of wood, somewhere between pretentious and spooky. So back before the murder, it was something that people had noticed and talked about. Then, quite suddenly, it seemed to locals, Ian's stick vanished. It did disappear.
2: No, it's missing ever since, for some reason.
3: They thought it seemed suspicious, like maybe he'd got rid of it because he'd used it as a weapon. One guy went looking for it. Billy Fuller, a Skull landscaper who used to work jobs with Ian, thought he'd seen Jules dumping the stick down near Kilfada Bridge after the murder. So he set off with his wife and baby and was rooting around in the brushland when suddenly he saw someone he was sure was Ian, walking along with the same staff Billy had seen at Ian's house before. Billy went into a blind panic. He picked up the baby, abandoned his van, and ran out onto the road to flag down a passing car. He told the driver, you know the murder in Cork, well Bailey is just down the road and I think he had the murder weapon with him. As it turned out, the man Billy ran from that day wasn't Ian at all. Billy was running from a farmer who owned the land he'd been searching on. And while he was carrying a big plank of wood, it wasn't Ian's stick. We asked Billy about how he felt about the incident now, years later, when he knew he hadn't seen Ian. His answer was surprising. He said he had to accept it was the farmer out there that day. I completely get it, he said. I get that I didn't see Ian. Except that I did. Billy can't reconcile what he saw with what he now acknowledges as the truth. This whole case was becoming about the things that you could prove and the things you just knew.
4: It's a bit like the fact that Ian would roam the countryside alone at night. Back then, you didn't have to have witnessed it yourself to accept it as an article of
5: faith. There's a funny communications network that happens in rural Ireland. Did you see himself the other evening? Ian's neighbour, Delia Jackson. That's just one of the things that Ian did, with go out walking late at night and to the moon.
4: When we asked Ian about going walking in the night, he said no, not particularly. But in the weeks after the murder, the guards took statements from people in West Cork who said they'd run into Ian out on the roads at night. A woman who ran a taxi service said she'd seen him regularly out on the road somewhere. Once, it was 3.30 in the morning. He had his hands up in the air and was screaming. She remembered he was wearing a black hat, his underpants, and nothing else. Another guy, a young man who worked at the Skull grocery store, ...told the guards he'd been driving one rainy winter's night... ...when he came across this presence in the middle of the road coming towards him. He slowed to a crawl as Ian came into view, soaked from the rain. Lit up by the car headlights, Ian went skipping along the white line in the centre of the road... ...waving his hands in the air like a bird. This is curious behaviour. But what may have just been explained away is drunkenness before... Now, in the context of the murder, seemed far more
3: unsettling. The moon, specifically the full moon, is a motif in all these stories about Ian. The moonstick, walking by the light of the full moon, dancing with lesbians under a full moon. Ian believes the guards were spreading the stories about him and the moon, trying to establish that he was crazy, that he'd blacked out and murdered Sophie while possessed by strange forces.
2: They were trying to make out that I was some sort of crazed werewolf of madman who was affected by the moon. And as you can see, I'm not at all. So you have this unreal hysteria that's being perpetuated.
4: But what's interesting about it is, we found the source
3: of the full moon hysteria, and it seems to be Ian. Ian used to talk about the moon a lot. When people asked him how long he'd been in West Cork, He measured it by cycles of the moon. And in that first meeting he had with Detective Dermot Dwyer, before he was arrested the first time, Ian brought up the fact that the murder had happened on a full moon and that the full moon affected people, including himself.
2: Uh, At some point, the moon did come up. Um, uh, was the reason for lunacy in the past.
3: Ian explained to Detective Dwyer that the belief is embedded in our language. From lunar you get lunacy. Dwyer also recorded in his statement that he and Ian had talked about the effects of alcohol. Ian used to be a big drinker of whiskey, and when not at the pubs, he'd sometimes drink pachin, the local moonshine. Pachin would be passed around at parties, and like anything that comes out of someone's garden shed, the quality would vary along with the strength, anything to 90% proof. Ian's careful not to drink spirits anymore, but back then it seems it wasn't about what he drank, so much as when he drank it.
2: I, I was aware of the fact that you, if you drink on a full moon, the alcohol can have a different effect on you. So I, I and I've observed it in other people, and I would have been possibly been aware of it in myself as well. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, it's to do with the fluids, the way the, the, the pull of the moon, which I think can be measured, people say, can be measured on in a cup of water. There's, there's some reason, medical reason,
3: and that was something, anyway, like anecdotally, you had noticed about when you drank on full moons, it had more of an effect or a different effect or whatever? Yeah, I think so, yeah.
2: In what way? I don't know. Um,
3: I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. After speaking to Ian, we read up about it. It's a belief people have had since ancient Greece that the moon has a sinister influence on us. One idea was that our equilibrium is governed by the cycles of the moon, that the pressure on our brain when the moon is closest to the Earth sends people crazy, or makes them sleepwalk, or increases the intoxifying effects of alcohol and drugs. Another theory was that back before outdoor lighting, a bright full moon would deprive people of sleep and send them out into the night. This thinking about the effects of the moon was nicknamed the Transylvania effect after the medieval belief in lycanthropy, that under a full moon, people can transmogrify into vampires or werewolves. The Transylvania effect was given scientific weight by 20th century research. Studies found the moon's influence in everything, from spikes in psychiatric hospital admissions to fluctuations in the Dow Jones average. But all these studies about the Transylvania effect are now thought of as nothing more than speculative or bad science. Still, many people like Ian believe in the Transylvania effect. And if this theory was going around about anyone else, it's exactly the type of thing Ian would have bought into. Whether or not Ian believed it, the guards seemed to be chasing down leads like this. They took statements from multiple dog owners living near Sophie who said their pets had been acting unusually on the night of the murder, as though the dogs might have sensed there was trouble afoot. One detective took a statement from a Skull teacher who freelanced as a healer and tarot card reader. The statement details how she performed a technique called a pendulum, hovering a loosely held pen over some paper with her eyes closed, and came up with the words, Ian Bailey and I am Sophia, I will be with you on Sunday. Who knows what the guards made of this statement, but they went to the trouble to take it down and include it in their case file. From looking through the statements, the guards aren't necessarily pursuing the line that Ian is someone who's affected by the moon, but that he thinks he might be. It's just that once this otherworldly idea was out there, Any nuance was lost. Ian really was this madman moon wizard with ten lesbians under his command.
4: The moon connection was one of the guard's new lines of inquiry to do with Ian's state of mind. Detectives asked witnesses for information about Ian's strange behaviour that would help build up the old psychological profile, anything that might help build a case that Ian was driven to murder by madness. Then, there were more sober-minded explanations for Ian's possible motive. There was talk, talk that the guards could never establish as fact, that Ian had actually known Sophie. Remember Alfie, Sophie's neighbour, who had hired Ian for some gardening work the year before Sophie died? Well, Alfie was sure that that day he hadn't just pointed Sophie out to Ian. He was sure he'd introduced them. Another local guy told the guards he had seen Ian at a storytelling festival that summer. He said Ian was standing with a blonde woman who looked just like Sophie. And in a statement taken by the guards from a colleague of Sophie's in Paris, there was another claim. That a month before her death, Sophie had been speaking to a writer named Owen Bailey, the name Ian went by back then. According to his statement, Sophie's colleague initially thought Sophie was talking about a French director named Edwin Bally, but she corrected him with a smile, saying you couldn't know this man, he lives in Ireland. Maybe, the thinking went... Ian had shown Sophie his writing, looking for work or simply praise. She'd laughed him off, and it enraged Ian to be seen as a joke. Ian points out that this statement wasn't taken until 1999, three years after the murder and after Ian's name had been in the papers. In an interview a year after the murder, Sophie's husband Daniel spoke about his thoughts on the motive. He said that even though reports were that it hadn't been a sexual attack, he thought that could have motivated it. He said that Sophie always spoke her mind and could be quite cutting. Daniel didn't think it was premeditated, but he said the killer could have come with the desire to seduce a woman, to take her. She refused, she fought. "Et voilà," he said. Things went bad.
3: Billy Fuller, the guy who went looking for Ian's moonstick down near Kifada Bridge, says he had a conversation with Ian one night up at the prairie back before the first arrest. Billy says that evening he confronted Ian about the rumours going around that he was involved in the murder. And according to Billy's statement, Ian responded by telling Billy, yes, you did it, didn't you? You saw her in spa, the Skull supermarket, and she turned you on with her tight ass. so you went up there to see what you could get. But she wasn't interested, so you attacked her, and she got away, so you chased her and stoved something into the back of her head and went a lot further than you meant to. Then Billy said to Ian, that's like the sort of thing you'd do. He says Ian just laughed and shrugged it off. So, do you remember that conversation? No, no. None of that has any ring of familiarity?
2: No, I
3: can't. Um, No. So, what do you think happened then? Why don't you think he made that all up? I don't know. What about this line here? You saw her in spa, and she turned you on, walking up the aisle. She was in spa on Saturday. This has to have been in either his head or your head at this point. So I'm wondering, is it something that the police had been talking to people about? Like
2: I, I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, it's just another piece of malicious fabrication. Uh, again, you really need to ask him.
3: Billy talked us through everything he'd said in statements, and he stood by what he'd said back in 1997. Even today, Billy appears traumatised by this case. He told us at the end of our chat that he wasn't sure he could trust us. We told him we were only interested in getting to the truth of what happened, what he saw. And he said, we seemed to be on the level, but he couldn't be sure. Maybe we were working for Ian's team of lawyers.
4: So a picture was developing of Ian as the type of guy who went wandering the countryside at night and might pitch up at a woman's door looking for trouble. Writer and journalist Michael Sheridan never met Ian, but he wrote a true crime book on the murder called Death in December.
3: There is
2: little doubt in anybody's mind that the murderer went up to attempt to have some sort of sexual contact with Sophie Toscan de Plantier and was rejected. Now, this type of individual, and the profile would point out, reacts extremely badly and violently towards rejection.
4: Sheridan also wrote an article profiling the killer.
2: I got with a guy that I did those sort of things with a forensic psychiatrist and he gave me a very uh, interesting and uh, profile of the type of person who would do that who was basically a, a sexual psychopath.
4: Sheridan wrote, He needed to be at the centre of attention. He often had grandiose ideas and plans. Usually they came to nothing in the end.
3: You are very careful in this story to not even mention Ian Bailey by name. No. OK, but what you're saying is, nevertheless, the community in West Cork read this story mm. and they recognised the person that's described uh, by, yes. the, yeah. by this profile yes. there, as being yeah. the guy who lives in their community, Ian Bailey. Mm. And, um, so what was the impact of that? Well, it was a very negative impact on Ian Bailey. Being innocent until proven guilty didn't seem to exist for Ian in West Cork. What was he supposed to have done? Ian says once people buy into what he calls the false narrative, everything gets twisted to make him look guilty. Everything he does feeds into a myth about him, and he says in that environment you can find yourself doing things that make you look bad. When you're under suspicion, but there's no hard evidence of any kind, it's very hard to get out from under that suspicion. Ian talks about the difficulty of proving a negative being not guilty of murdering Sophie. He's helpless to get rid of this taint on him. Helpless also because none of this is out in the open. There's no trial, no showdown. It's all phone calls and whisperings and statements taken behind closed doors. People crossing to the other side of the street. Conversations misinterpreted, misremembered or taken out of context. Maybe it's enough to send anyone crazy.
1: He used to phone my parents, very drunk, very late at night.
4: Ian's sister, Kay, remembers what it was like for them as a family trying to support Ian through this time.
1: Yeah, it, it would be like he'd phone them in the middle of the night and I, I remember begging him not to phone them, phone me because of the backlash, you know, seeing them so upset next, next day and Dad was very ill at the time so I it didn't feel like it was helpful. What was um, he phoning for? It's hard to know because the drunken conversations are never... They're not great, are they? <laughs> um, I think he just needed to download and he was, you know, he'd be, he'd be in tears. And we didn't know how to handle him, really. Nothing we could really say. Kay says it was a lot like it had been growing up
4: Ian out somewhere, not thinking about the upset he was causing his parents. Kay at home with them, towing the line and trying to reassure them.
1: Yeah, it carried on. So I was quite resentful to Ian, and all he seemed to do was cause them more more distress, uh, what was a very, very difficult time while Dad was ill. But at the same time, never once thought he did it, you know, so it was, it was, there was a lot of sympathy for him as well, you know, for what, what was unfolding as an absolute nightmare,
3: really. On New Year's Eve 1998, two years after the murder, Ian and Jules ventured into Skull to a pub and invited another couple, Richard and Rosie Shelley, back to their place afterwards. The Shelleys didn't know Ian and Jules well. And when they arrived, they say straight away, Ian pulled out a folder of press clippings he collected on the murder and began obsessively going back over it all. The Shelleys told the guards that later, Ian burst into tears, put his arms around Richard and said, I did it, I did it, I did it. Richard says he asked Ian what he was talking about, and Ian just said, I went too far. Ian remembers the night. He says they were all very drunk, and he was repeating a mantra beaten into him by the guards. They're saying, I did it, I did it.
2: They told me, you know, I did it. You did it, you did it, you did it. Um, on several occasions, they mindwashed themselves or brainwashed themselves, and they were trying to almost brainwash me and the community into believing that I was the killer.
4: And did any part of you wonder at any point, well, maybe I did?
2: Well, well, I knew that I didn't, so no. But it, it starts to undermine your own thinking, if you like, about what you know. You know that you don't, but you've got people here telling you that you did something. And it's very strange. It causes a... Um, not a confusion, exactly, because I know I have nothing to do with this. Uh, but at the same time, it sort of puts a bit of doubt in your own mind.
3: The Shelleys say they left petrified straight after Ian's outburst but they didn't speak to the guards about that night until six months later. Six months is a long time to remember the precise wording of what was said on a drunken New Year's Eve. And it comes down to a small discrepancy in sentence construction. Either it sounds like a man cracking under intense pressure or it sounds like a confession, which is the way the Shelleys took it. The Shelleys said that they hadn't gone to the guards about this incident because they hadn't wanted to get involved.
4: Which made us wonder, Because on the one hand, there's the idea that people were being swept up in this community-wide hysteria around Ian. But on the other hand, the Shelleys say they were trying to stay out of it and were being dragged in by the strange behaviour of the self-confessed prime suspect. Ian's neighbour Delia Jackson lived down the lane from Ian and had many visits from the guards.
5: I don't buy into the witch hunt argument or the idea that we were all manic or anything like that.
2: There was a case made that the police did indeed try to engender fear in the public. But that's not the case from our perspective. No,
0: definitely not.
2: Definitely not. The police didn't engender the fear. The police were informed about the fear.
4: A particular example that Tom and Kerry are thinking of is one night when Kerry believes Ian pitched up outside her house.
0: I will simplify it and say that i was terrified it was a very windy night it was the february after the murder it was the full moon
4: carrie used to live on a quiet lane a mile or so from ian and jules her partner was friends with ian and he used to call by that night she was home alone with her two young daughters
0: i'd borrowed a television a little tiny portable and i was trying to watch Woody Allen film the reception was so bad it kept going in and out in the wind and then the next thing I heard shouting and ranting and howling and I knew it was Ian and I actually had the door open and had one foot outside the door when I suddenly thought oh my god it's like in the movies and you're screaming at them don't go out there you know and I shut the door and then I couldn't find a key I sat up the entire night with the bread knife and the poker on either side of me in my little parlour playing cards to keep myself awake the only two words I could hear clearly I heard my name and I heard the word sorry
4: We asked Ian about this story he says it didn't happen
2: Yeah it was a complete load of bollocks I was a complete... Nonsense, yeah, complete nonsense.
3: It's difficult to know what to make of this. Kerry knew Ian well, she knew his voice, and even though she can never prove it was him outside that night, it was just a voice in the wind in the nighttime. there's no doubt in her mind that the guy outside her door was the man who lived just down the road, who she'd likely run into out food shopping. Understanding that someone is innocent until proven guilty doesn't tell you how to conduct yourself when you bump into the one and only suspect in the brutal murder of a woman. Do you say hello to a man who might have bashed someone's brains in? Do you make a sign as if to ward off evil spirits? How do you live with this? It, it was a strange time. Remember the guards had made three points to the prosecutor, one of them being that until Ian was safely behind bars, his neighbours were in imminent danger. Well, Delia Jackson was one of those neighbours.
5: I think genuinely, um, we really struggled. If Ian is an innocent man, he's a man whose life has been destroyed, who has been wronged, and to have that person as a neighbour, as a friend, and to not be present or supportive, that's pretty awful. But at the same time then... If you really believe that the the person who is closest in proximity to you, living in an extremely rural location, has bludgeoned somebody to death, then that's that's a completely other scenario. So it, it it was it was very strange, and I did have a carving knife under my pillow the entire time that I was there. So if he came to our home, I'd offer him a beer and invite him in, and. We talk about the case or the day or what, what, whatever, um, but at the same token, you would have conscious in your mind okay, but what if?
3: As though by day it was neighbourly chats and farmers' markets, but by night it was witchcraft and moonlit wanderings and madness. St.
4: Patrick's Day in 1997 was when Martin Graham, the double agent, had first wandered up Ian's driveway. Ian quickly saw through that ruse, but he didn't catch the second spy. A detective sergeant was spending that night doing surveillance on Ian's house. In his statement, the guard doesn't explain exactly how he concealed himself, but he must have been ducked down below the stone wall behind the house. It was raining that night. Picture him with his trench coat and a pair of binoculars, standing in the sodden field... In his statement about the evening, he wrote, At 1.15am, Ian Bailey came out the back door of the house. He stood in the backyard, facing away from the house. He looked upwards and started shouting at the top of his voice. It was a continuous roar that sounded like a wolf call. His roars disturbed a rooster in the outside shed. Bailey then imitated the rooster at the top of his voice. He did this a number of times before returning to the house. Then about 3 a.m., Ian came out into the yard again and started flinging clothes around in any direction, shouting, They can come and accuse me of anything they want. They can come and accuse me of anything they want because I'm fucking mad in the head. The detective says at one point he became worried for Jules's safety and called for backup. But later, Ian re-emerged in the kitchen, naked, and turned out the lights. One reading of this incident is that Ian was being driven spare by his predicament in West Cork. Everywhere he went, he was watched. At home, Ian thought his phone was being tapped. It was like being eaten alive, he said later in court. Scrutinized by his neighbors, the press, the guards, maybe the pressure of the intrusion and the accusations had finally become too much for him. And if this was what being accused by West Cork had driven Ian to, midnight wolf and rooster impressions, Ian couldn't have known that even in this very moment, There was a guy standing in the darkness documenting this as yet more evidence of how suspect he was.
3: The other reading of this is that Ian was seriously troubled, possessed even, and that the darkest rumours about Ian might have been true. That he was indeed fucking mad in the head.
4: West Cork is an Audible original production. Written and produced by Jennifer Ford and Sam Bungie. Produced and sound designed by Kristen Muller, Alex Trahano, Robin Wise and Paul Schneider. Our theme music was composed by Shani Avaram. Our recording engineer is Sean Moher. West Cork is edited by Mike Olive. Our fact checker is Christine Baird. And Jesse Baker and Eric Newsom are the executive producers.